वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक and talkers around the table today discuss the transience of memories we'll think about the impermanence and transience of memories how do we remember and why do we forget how do we remember forgetting how do molecular and electrical signals encode and sustain memories our collective memories embodied is all memory localized in the brain Are lost memories lost forever? How is memory reconstructed? Why does chunking work? What role do emotions and belief systems play in memory systems? What is the physical meaning of unconscious or subconscious memory? And what is the very long-term future of individual and collective memories? And can forgetting be history? We are pleased and privileged to have three cent talkers with us here today. Professor Upinder S. Bhalla is a computational and experimental neuroscientist at National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore. He has been interested in understanding how memory works. Dr. Rohit Chopra is a professor of communication and media studies at Santa Clara University. His current research interests center on the relationship between media and memory. And Dr. Pushpa Mishra, she is a professor of philosophy, a psychoanalyst, and a former principal of Bethune College in Kolkata. Upi, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, to understand uh, the processes of memory the process of remembering the process of encoding a memory and the process of forgetting what happens there and what is memory okay well memory at least at the i'll go backwards memory at the very uh, easily observed level mm-hmm. is anything that causes a change in behavior mhm um a lasting change in behavior and uh the basis of this so it's kind of interesting the basis of this is reasonably well characterized maybe not fully understood but reasonably well characterized in terms of what is happening at the cellular and electrical and to some extent even molecular levels then why do you say to some extent at the molecular levels because well it's all very complicated that's why sure. so sure you you know you can always uh blame the occurrence of memory on molecule a or molecule b sure but the fact of the matter is that there are thousands of molecules involved in it sure and all the interactions are so very there's an element of interaction emergentism and things like that exactly sort. yeah so uh and you know periodically people do say that oh i have discovered the memory molecule but sure. it's only a small part <laughs> of the of the big picture So yeah so as i was saying there's and i uh, noticed that you haven't yet used the word brain is that intentional or it's un- it's implicit it's implicit okay so we are thinking i mean one sort of assumes that this is happening in the brain but strictly speaking molecular changes are remembered in 
all cells in your body, right. which is why your toe remembers that it is a toe, right. and your liver remembers that it is a liver, right. and so on. So again, at the molecular level, it's actually remarkable how many commonalities there are between ways in which information can be retained. Right. Um, although, of course, the brain has a lot of very specialized machinery mm -hmm. for retaining information for long times. So yeah, so as I was saying, at the very low level, there's quite a lot understood and characterized about memory. So we know how very, very brief signals of you know, rapid neural activity, for example, coming from some experience, uh, can lead to long-lasting changes in how cells communicate with each other. Um, and this is you know, called synaptic plasticity. Sure. Um, various terms are given long-term potentiation and depression and so on. Right. And these are you know, readily characterized and uh, a lot of mechanistic details have been worked out about molecules and electrical and so on. Right. And, and is, there, is there an element of, uh, is there a role played by recurrence? Can a single event have a very, very long-lasting memory or it necessarily needs to be something that's repeated, if you know what I mean? Well, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, it's, and actually what um, anyone would treat as the intuitive and obvious answer is the correct answer, which is that very strong and salient events can be remembered once off. Mm -hmm. But for learning things which are not uh, accompanied by a strong emotional significance, you typically need to repeat and work at it to remember. Mm. And this is not news to any uh, school child. Who <laughs> anybody to, who's ever taken an exam. Anybody who's ever taken an exam knows that this is the case. And uh, So there's an important role played by an emotional significance or some kind of a marker. Some yes. Kind. So, right. So that's the other extreme. So if you have an event accompanied by enormous stress or positive or negative emotion, that is very likely to be remembered. And there are circuits in the brain, the amygdala, for example, which is particularly interested, if you like, in such kinds of memories. And it can be dysfunctional. So, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder right. is a situation where these memories are out of control and almost anything will trigger them. Almost anything will trigger them? Yes. So that's, that's why it's a disorder. Why does that happen? Why would anything trigger certain memories, Pushpa? Well, as uh, Opie has just said, um, negative, especially negative emotions actually uh, have been found to be remembered very well, though it goes against Freudian uh, assertion. Mm -hmm. Freud had said that whatever is very painful, whatever is very traumatic... Would be repressed. Yeah, it is repressed because, you know, the mind simply cannot take it. And just, it's a method of survival. Can we so, understand that? What does repression mean? Or what did Freud mean when he said that? Just in okay. the sense of forgotten or it's... Uh, no, 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 it is not forgotten. Right. In fact, not, certainly not. In, as Freud would say, that any thought or any memory that is disturbing you, you try to push it to a deeper level of mind. And according to Freud... Consciousness is the uppermost level of mind, which occupies a very, very small portion of our mind, uh, just below, just after the PCPT con consciousness, that is perceptual consciousness, mm -hmm. whose sphere is very little. Like, you know, I'm seeing you now. Sure. <laughs> that only is the sphere of perceptual consciousness. Sure. And I, when I look at Opie, that is the sphere of perceptual consciousness. You are gone. Right. And... 
after that comes the pre-conscious level, which is a level where the contents that we uh, experience, mm -hmm. which are stored, they are not unconscious. They can be brought back to the mind as and when it is required. For example, if you ask me, what is your name? I can immediately say Pushpa Mishra. But it's not on the top of your no, mind. No, it's not yeah. on the top of the mind. Right. I'm not constantly thinking that, okay, you know, my name is Pushpa Mishra, my name is Pushpa Mishra, or my father's name is this and this. Right. So that is the preconscious level of mind. That's a very important level of mind because all our memory, working memory, that are stored there. And we actually, the ego goes to the preconscious, takes the help of the memory and deals with the situation. So where do the repressed memories go? Repressed memories go to the unconscious level of mind, which That's is the, the third. Level below preconscious. Yeah, the third and the deepest level of mind. And uh, they are certainly not uh, dead they are alive and the memories uh, actually try to come up if they are memories or thoughts which want to get satisfaction. The disturbing thoughts which we do not recognize, want to recognize because they are not, they are against our social and moral sense. Those thoughts always try to come up to the conscious level of mind because without coming to the conscious level of mind, they certainly will not get satisfaction. And is, so, there, is there a certain kind of wishfulness that drives it? You wish for that memory to go away and that's why it goes there yeah, it all course, happens in a subconscious you wish, it, you wish that the memory goes away or the thought goes away. Not right. the memory, but the thought goes away because, you know, it is disturbing you. You have an image of yourself. You are a social being. You are a moral being. And if a thought comes which is totally against against your idea of yourself, you simply do not want to entertain that thought. So you push it back. So it first goes to the preconscious level of mind and from there, there is a pull of the unconscious. So the thought goes to the unconscious level of mind. But it is not devoid of psychic energy. Freud has used the word psychic energy. It remains there. And as far as PTSD is concerned, the memories... The traumatic memories are such that the mind simply cannot take it anymore. It is a method of survival, for example, to repress those traumatic memories so that for the time being, your ego is able to handle the situation. Then why would almost anything trigger it? I mean, oh, if it's, it's gone it's, successfully yeah. to the unconscious, then... Yeah, no, if it, is, if it remains there successfully, fine. Right. But sometimes the emotions are so strong that the mind simply is unable to keep them uh, in the unconscious, unconscious level of mind for long. And Upi, what is the unconscious? I know I'm asking, posing the wrong <laughs> question to the wrong person. I get that part, so it's intentional. Yes. But is there a way of thinking about the unconscious no, at all? No, no you are not asking the wrong question. <laughs> Actually, Freud was a doctor, as you know, and he was very, very much interested in physiology and neurology. And he had, before he became uh, a doctor, he had done research work on cerebral palsy, etc., etc. Oh. And um, he said that a day would come when everything psychological could be explained by neurobiological and neurochemical factors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have so asked OP, the right OP is question. Upi is carrying yeah. the baton. Oh dear, okay. What is the unconscious? Well, I mean, actually you've really put me on the spot here because for neuroscientists, um, there's two C words which are not, <laughs> not, not spoken not in, in, in polite company. Um, one of them is cognition and the other one is consciousness. Right. And yeah. the reason is that neuroscience is uh, quite far from uh, being able to 
tackle these things in the reductionist and uh, mechanistic ways that it likes. Is it is it is it a question that uh, the community of neuroscientists think about at all, or it's very much a question that they think about. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I were to be a little facetious, I would say that. Um, uh, it's the it's the topic which retired neuroscientists like to write about. Right. But uh, the fact is that uh, I think that both of these words are very, very loaded. Mm. They also have uh, uh, a whole range of definitions mm. which sometimes get in the way of analyzing them uh, in the with the tools that uh, basic neurosciences are equipped. So... Uh, so to talk about consciousness is uh, something which takes a great deal of uh, of courage if you're if you're a practicing neuroscientist. You know, having said that, you know there's uh, a related topic which is actually fairly well studied, and that is attention. Mm-hmm. So you can be paying attention to some topic or some sensory stimulus or or thought for that matter. So, what is the state of attention for the brain? What what does that mean? Is is there? Can you look at a brain and say that it is in a state of attention? It, it may be a stupid question, but you know what I'm getting at. I know what you're getting at. So, yes, there are neural correlates. So, there are, uh, for example, you can record from cells in the brain, mm-hmm. uh, say the visual system, mm-hmm. and they will be quiet, uh, given a certain stimulus if you're not paying attention to it. Right. But when you start paying attention to it, you can start to see these cells That's beautiful. Giving, giving some activity. So now that is something measurable, something that one can go after with the yeah. mechanistic tools we're equipped with. Yeah. yeah, and you know, in the modern modern psychoanalyst, I mean, neo-Freudians and, and the current contemporary psychoanalysts do not want to use the term unconscious. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying whether it is good or bad. I'm not passing any use? judgment. But they, many of them consider that, you know, the conscious and unconscious factors, instead of those terms, we should use attention. You are conscious of something because you are paying attention to it. Right. And it is probably at the focal point of your atten- atten- field of attention. Right. And, you know... Uh, as other other objects you are really not paying attention to, they are go- going to the fringe or to the periphery of your field of at, uh, attention. And probably in this way, they would say that what is unconscious means you simply have stopped paying attention to It's just far from it. the center of attention yeah, in the field of far, attention. Yeah, far, you know, like if you... If you, if you draw a circle layers, like but this, semi-circular. when your mind yeah. is focusing on the object, that is at the focal point of your attentive field. Right. And then, you know, these fringes, they are pre-conscious. And then it may be unconscious is something you simply are not paying any attention to. Right. So many of them, as uh, Opie has pointed out, are not comfortable with these terms. Uh, conscious, unconscious. And for exactly the same reason which uh, Opie has pointed out, because there has been severe criticism of psychoanalysis or so to say any mental science Interesting. that, you know, it's not quote unquote scientifically, quantitatively, objectively measurable uh, and not amenable to experimental verification. So some psychoanalysts, I'm not saying all, contemporary psychoanalysts do want to uh, uh, consider use those Conceive terms. of it using the word attention yeah, rather than... As OP has said. Why don't we go to you, Rohit? I think there's some interesting questions that we're opening up here and we'll open another one of collective memories. Uh, 
what does that mean to you as 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 a media studies person as a communication studies person what is collective memory for you what is memory for you in general as one thinks about it of course at the level of the individual but also at the level of some collectivities there's uh, you know whole series of interesting questions uh, yeah. uh that that sort of open out uh which uh, uh you know and and which do have a relationship if not direct uh, at least indirect with the very fascinating kinds of uh, you know observations that uh, upi and pushpa have both shared mm. uh my interest essentially is in uh, you know how communities or groups mm-hmm. uh, or even cultures remember uh traumatic events mm-hmm. and how these events then uh shape notions of identity both perceptions of uh those own communities and groups as well as uh you know perceptions that they might have of others but is there an equivalent of the repression that happens at the level of collectivities as well uh th- there are definite resonances so you know to just give you some kind of context sure. uh there's a whole sort of field in not media studies in particular mm-hmm. but generally in the across the humanities and social sciences called memory work right and it was inaugurated by the work of a french historian uh, pierre nora who wrote right. this you know book on uh, this sort of uh, uh, work starting with an with an essay uh on the relationship between memory and history mm-hmm. and of course his essentially his claim was and being a little reductive here but mm. his claim was that um you know memory is something the past or a sense of past is something that's just passed on organically uh in societies and it's precisely when you get the break of modernity which you also associate with things like the nation state that's when you self consciously start to sort of develop uh you know this this a uh, particular kind of notion of sort of history and then he looked at what were called sites of memory mm-hmm. uh you know and for me it's very interesting this time around just walking around parts of mumbai uh, the old colonial city there are so many sites of memory uh, one thing that struck me was you know bombay has this reputation of being a dhanda or a trade city <laughs> but there's actually an excess of memory you know the naval uprising memorial at you know i lived in bombay almost a decade of course there was a long time ago i would pass by it every day i would never see it so specifically i'm sort of interested in this question with regard to certain events events like you know uh the 1992 93 riots and bomb blasts that followed mm. uh the uh then 26 11 mm. uh how that event is memorialized mm. uh my interests here uh lie with i'd say three questions uh you know one is that there are always certain gatekeepers of memory and typically there have been you know two gatekeepers of memory one one is the state uh memory as recorded in official archives and right. so on and so forth right. uh the second would be you know scholars uh or journalists uh what's happened now with the advent of the internet and particularly social media is that you get a third kind of voice which in some ways represents a kind of but the dem- second being the private domain i imagine uh the second is you know i would say yes it's private but it's state i mean they have complex relationship with sure. each other because you also have you know academics who are patron organized by the state sure. and have a complex relationship with them and in sure. india this relationship is particularly fraught sure. because you know you've had a kind of tradition of the congress party in particular sure. uh you know encouraging a certain kind of vision of history sure. which is what the right sort of tends to attack sometimes uh mostly unfairly i'd say but mm. occasionally not without a glimmer of truth mm. i'd say mm. but now with social media you have a sort of third kind of space and what happens is you get things like you know every community claiming they've been the victim of a holocaust or a genocide <laughs> that's one question uh the second sort of interest is, is that is that a collective memory phenomenon or well i mean you know as they say i mean it could just be a quirky fact as opposed to well it's it's very interesting the term collective now is mm-hmm. sort of very loaded 
what happens here is that you have a particular kind of vocabulary which has currency in an international sort of audience and domain yeah. and particularly with regard to the word holocaust it's of course the you know uh, the 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 holocaust in world war 2 yeah. and uh, the holocaust of the jews the jewish holocaust that's the kind of the template yeah uh, the second is the word genocide because there are certain you know uh, implications that has in international law yeah. we know that with regard to the genocide in rwanda for instance uh, madeline albright who was then secretary of state uh, and the clinton administration they just simply refused to use the word genocide it was a classic case of you know walks like a duck talks like a duck we won't call it a duck right. because had they used the word genocide they would have immediately been compelled to act under international law right. now what's happening is that state and non state actors including those those who themselves have often been accused of crimes will often use these words genocide holocaust and of course the third word is terror because then you immediately get a certain kind of attention now what happens when you look at a phenomenon like this mysterious hindu holocaust is that this is a project that starts or is started by a group of let's say a small subsection of people uh, you know who might be nris based in the san francisco Uh, Silicon Valley Bay Area, who put up a Hindu Holocaust Memorial Museum, right? And then the next thing you know is that it becomes what's called a cyber cascade. It kind of takes on a life of itself. Right. And then the next thing you know is it coalesces into something like so a kind of. So, what forms do collective memories take? If we were to think of it at a somewhat theoretical, conceptual level, uh, Rohit, are there? What are, What are the forms of collective memory? I mean, does it? It's not formless, right? No. Memories are not formless. It, you know, they're very closely connected to ritual. Mm-hmm. one is i would say and you know like if you look at the ganesh festival for instance mm. right which is a part of tradition now we know that that's something that's not more than 100 120 years yeah. old started right? by tilak or whatever it was started by tilak so right. here you have a classic case of you know the invention of tradition yes. so then you have collective <laughs> memory taking a sort of form of you know certain kinds of traditions and then those traditions are sort of read back into antiquity or given a kind of deeper historical significance mm. Um, mm. so that's you know those are a couple of things so it could always in. be somewhat ritualistic i i think that yes the expressions of memory are always sort of ritualistic whether they happen within the domain of the private space you know around a dining table which is you know kind of what Maurice Holbach's in on collective memory speaks about right. that these are memories that are passed gen from generation to generation right. now two other questions where you know i'd be very interested in hearing uh, uh pushpa and upi's response uh, one is that you know recently there've been a couple of scholars who've actually said that there's an excess of memory one of them is philip gurevich who wrote the sort of classic book on rwanda mm. we wish to inform you that tomorrow we'll be killed with our families uh, wives and children and he's he wrote a piece for the new yorker i think where he says this almost too much memory and that this what does that mean well i think his you know point too is too much of the past in the present he just says that it's you know it's so again it's something that a student of mine in a class that i teach on violence and communication once mentioned that what is the point of so much remembering it's an open wound and interestingly it's also a conversation that i was having with you know a gentleman who was driving me around one day we were talking started talking about the 9293 riots and and i have very vivid memories of those which again sure. like all memory may be unstable to some sure. extent and he said that what is the point of remembering that we should move on so i think that's kind of you know what what Uh, Gurevich was saying and I think another journalist David Reef kind of made a similar argument. Right. Now I sometimes think about this distinction that I believe Freud made between repression and suppression. Mm. Right? Where I think he may have What said is that, that distinction Pushpa? Suppression is the willful and de- de- deliberately pushing some thought at the back of your mind. It's willful, deliberate. Right. But repression is unconscious process. You do not know that you really have 
pushed some memory or some experience uh, at the uh, um, deeper level of your mind and can one forget willfully uh upi if i want to forget that we ever had this conversation can i forget it's very hard to forget why is that uh, in fact there is experimental evidence yes. that if you try to forget um in any experience or any name or anything you will actually constantly be th- thinking about so does suppression work in the context in which uh, if if there's a willful side to it uh, i would imagine that by its very nature it should be something impossible i don't know but i think at the social level you know right. and i just sort of to pause for a second actually just to respond to the points both of them made it reminded me of this there's a marvelous parable about you know uh, a king uh-huh. who uh, wants uh, i think he wants uh, uh, uh his doctor uh-huh. to come up with some kind of sort of magical cure for him uh-huh. and the doctor is sort of very terrified that the king will have him put to death uh-huh. and the doctor's friend gives him some advice and tells the king that you tell him that if he doesn't think about mangoes this will happen and once <laughs> once the doctor puts that idea into the king's head all that the king can do is think about mangoes, think about mangoes. and you know so that kind of perfectly illustrates the impossibility of forgetting now at the social level it seems that you know again it's a very complex question about what is the sort of economy of remembering and forgetting you know right. uh we know that there is a project that states sometime have of a of the political management of memory mm-hmm. so one of the things that you look at is that you know what is the evidence now we have of discussions about the 2002 riots and you know modi's role in it and so on mm-hmm. uh another thing is that because we now have a generation that's so dependent on the internet unless it, there's something online it doesn't exist if it does yeah. it didn't happen on google it doesn't exist so this actually came up with regard to uh, Uh, discussions around the yakub memon time right. of the yakub memon hanging uh, there was a whole generation of young people in bombay and elsewhere i believe who thought that the bomb blasts happened first and then the <laughs> sectarian riots happened but there's also i think uh, yeah, effort yeah. by people to move on i mean people don't want to talk about it uh you know yeah. and this is a question that urvashi botalia had raised in a kind of landmark book called the, the other side of silence of yeah. in the context of partition like oral histories yeah. where she you know said that every every family you speak to in delhi has a story there's something mm-hmm. noble about forgetting uh, and and, you and know, convenient and helpful and you can understand that you know and she it's interesting that she talks in the project in the preface yeah. of the book she talks about the need to remember by the end of that introductory chapter she says that hearing these stories was so difficult that i needed to ask a colleague of mine to work with me so that immediately tells you that you know yeah. uh it's 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 a sort of pat and easy explanation to say that you know uh these communities didn't want to talk about it because they didn't know how to talk about it yeah. but there may be a kind of you know survival yeah. and a kind of wisdom Let's, and a kind of wisdom a yeah. wisdom you know let's uh, uh you know they to 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 understand the strategies that everyday people use uh you know we sometimes i think you know uh, scholars academicians have a tendency to sort of <laughs> attribute lack of theoretical sophistication or whatever but there is actually you know a value maybe in moving on right now of course i want to there's a whole other can two other cans of worms i'll just leave those questions and i'm interested in hearing what what upi and pushpa have to say one is can you inherit trauma the memory yep. of trauma this is a question that you mean uh, at, at in in a genetic sense or? well it's a question talal asad who's a very interesting figure has raised about the holocaust for instance mm. and uh, you know in regard in light of also a critique of what is sometimes called the holocaust industry mm. saying that if you did not experience the holocaust yourself right 
but your grandparents did. Mm. Can you make certain political claims in American public space, sure. claiming that you have inherited the trauma of the Holocaust? Yeah. Right. So I think he's interested in the political kind of dimensions. So that's one. Mm. One. The second question is really the question of justice, right? Mm. And uh, you know, you sort of uh, one can one admires the the efforts of people who are still fighting for justice mm. for what happened in 1984 and 92, sure. 93. Sure. Sure. So how do you balance the imperative? to seek justice with also in some sense, you know, moving on and coming to terms, not coming to terms, but, you know, in whatever way kind of making your peace. Because uh, it is, I think we would agree, like sort of unhealthy to be stuck in one place, right? Where are we on that, Upi? Is it possible to inherit memories? And trauma being a special kind of memory, maybe? So stress, I mean, stress can be... Uh, can affect development of a, of an embryo, no question about that. And uh, effect versus encode. So does it? It leads to uh, behavior patterns which sometimes seem remarkably well evolved to cope or to respond effectively. Um, so you know, as a biologist, I think of it all in with the framework of evolution. Sure. Right. What allows the species to survive, but I think there's a very good parallel with what Rohit is saying about societies and what has to happen with individuals. Sure. You have to have a trade-off between uh, remembering something so that you can handle it better should the situation come up again yeah. and moving on so that you can advance your own and your, your progeny's survival yeah. without getting bogged down in something that has already happened. Yeah. So this trade-off is an individual trade-off as well as a social trade-off. Yeah, but there is a, there is one question regarding inheritance of trauma. What I wanted to know was, uh, uh, supposing we all know that stress has a very, very uh, negative effect, especially on the development of the fetus. You know, from time immemorial, even in, in India, we used to say to our pregnant mothers uh, that you remain happy all the yeah. time and all those things. Yeah. Uh, what I would like to know, uh, whether stress uh, could bring about genetic, I mean, uh, DNA changes, which can be then passed on to the next generation. You understand what I'm talking about is the uh, evolutionary theory, the difference between Lamarckism and Darwinism. And I think Joachim Bauer, he has been working on this and his his contention is, I don't know much about his theory, but I recently was talking with a German friend of mine. Uh, Bauer, Bauer's books have not been translated into English, uh, but she had read one or two of his books and she was talking to me and she said that he has given evidence and arguments of genetic change of genetic change i mean th those are Does they, it sound they are plausible heritable they are heritable i don't know about that so sure. i would like to hear so the base genetic code does not get affected mm -hmm. there's the epigenetic code which are uh, modifications made on top of the dna which actually do get erased at some point but to come back to the very specific point can it be passed on i think the and this is not my speciality, but my recollection is that uh, it can get passed on from uh, grandmother to mother to to the to the daughter. So it can pass on two generations. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, uh, any epigenetic trace will be lost. Right. And the mechanism. And you, and you mean that in the sense of two generations, or you mean that in the sense of the side of the women? 
I'm thinking of of female transmission because female because mm. you can have uh, many maternal effects mm. which are not necessarily DNA based. They're just mm. that the environment in the womb or for the matter in the fruit fly in the egg sure. um, affects the mother, sure. and that can have an effect uh, one one generation on. Mm. But it is it is it dissipates, but mm. it's but it can be inherited. But I should stress though that this is not specific memory. It is a very broad kind of sense of there has been a stress at this point. So there what kind of memory is that? I, we understand when you say it's not specific memory. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be, for example, the whole repertoire of hormonal and right. uh, phys- physiological changes that mm-hmm. the so probably, individual in- responds with when confronted with a difficult situation. Probably slightly better ability hormonally to deal with stress. Or worse. Hours. It depends on oh. what you call good or bad, right? Oh. So, hmm. for example, um, I don't know if you remember the Romanian uh, orphans uh, hmm. situation, right? There was a whole bunch. It was Romanian. There was a lot of orphans who had been in an orphanage with very little uh, yeah, loving so. care, yeah, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like an abstract concept, loving care. Yeah. Hmm. But it caused huge behavioral changes. And this is post gestational right and yet it 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 changed their effect it changed how they dealt with other people right now that can also be as i said passed on if there's major stress in the mother's life and admittedly it will also be passed on by the mother's own behavior to their offspring yeah of course so and it can be and behaviorally and it can be as i said it could be someone being hyper touchy extremely prone to pushing back or fighting back right. in a difficult situation. So you have to ask, is that survival-oriented or not? <laughs> and in a modern society, it could be either way. Why don't we go to the question we asked a while ago, P, about the question of forgetting? Mm-hmm. Is it difficult to... It's very easy to forget without it's knowing It's remarkable, about it. yes. So I have, why I have, is it so difficult to forget <laughs> consciously? Quite. I mean, um, yes, it's easy to forget and it's very hard to forget. Um, <laughs> the... So, and why do we remember forgetting? We somehow seem to remember that we've forgotten something, but we don't know what. So what's happening Actually, that's there? an easy one. Technically. Technically, that's an easy one to answer. Yes. Um, because there's been some beautiful neural network kinds of work, which makes perfect sense. Please. Brain function. So um, to remember, you have to reconstruct. You have to reconstruct the context, the inputs, whatever it is, you know, specifics. So it's a right. retrieval exercise. Right. But the ability to know that you've forgotten or the ability to say that, oh, this was the thing that I had forgotten. Mm-hmm. All that that needs is that you uh, provide a stimulus which reactivates the cells, the part of the network, and that can easily provide a signal, which is much easier computationally and network-wise than, than, reconstructing, than it. reconstructing it. Right. Yeah. Right. So you'll remember that, oh yeah, I, know th- I knew this, but I've forgotten it. Right. And you'll certainly say, aha, now that you reminded me, I now know the details. But you may not be able to remember the details offhand. So that's, that's one aspect of forgetting. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it's, this is the uh, classic psychology and behavioral neuroscience that uh, there are why, various ways to forget. Why is memory intrinsically transient? Why do we forget over a period of time? And most of the things we forget instantly. Well, um, it's, a, it's a why question. From, yes. From a computational and, I would say, functional point of view, it's simply because 
you have limited capacity and you need to use that for dealing with things of survival value. Mm -hmm. And which is why, for example, high stress events are readily remembered. Routine events are easily forgotten. Yeah. So you're constantly bombarded with experiences, as Bushro was saying. You completely get flooded with sensory input all the time. And uh, you can't remember that. Otherwise, you would not so be able to be functional. So what happens? It's not encoded at all? It's encoded. But the problem is that you're, it's easy to encode stuff, but to cause a long-lasting change, you need to, first of all, um, alter connections, let us say, synaptic strengths mm -hmm. in the brain. Mm -hmm. And that is not something that is done lightly. Mm -hmm. And it's not done lightly because every time you alter synaptic strengths, you may be affecting an older memory too. Mm -hmm. And secondly, when you want to use the information, it's not very good to have a whole lot of irrelevant information also So every time by. I do the same thing, every time I drive the car, um, does the same neural pathway get activated or something new happens every time I do that? No, by and large, you go through the motions and you don't even remember that you've driven the car. Exactly. And you don't remember any of the details. Exactly. Yeah, you just, you, you sort of put yourself on autopilot and that is far and away the most efficient. Uh, I mean... I, I would like to put in a, uh, maybe in the form of question. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have since our, you know, student days have always uh, read when, you know, memory experiments we have done, etc. That it is the interference of the stimuli which are coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, you, the memory trace that is being formed, that actually is being interfered with. Like the, an interference could be of two kinds. One is, suppose you are learning a material and you have learned another material just before that. You have studied, uh, for example, biology and after that you started studying physiology. So whatever you have studied in biology, if certain part of it is similar to um, uh, physiology, then it will interfere. And, you know, you you are... And you will not, uh, very easily you will forget. Very and you would forget both both of them? You would forget no, no, biology new, as well as physiology one, or one overrides one. the other? The new thing that you are trying to learn because its memory traces are not strong yet. So you will forget it. Now, recent, uh, rec the more a memory uh, is uh, used, the more frequently, the more vividly you remember it, the more uh, recently you use it, uh, it becomes stronger. And it can easily be then uh, remembered again. And each time you remember, it becomes strengthened. It becomes reinforced. So you're saying it's more likely that I forget where I kept my keys because I keep keep keeping it somewhere or the other every day. No, no, no. That, there you have to differentiate between transience of memory and absent-mindedness. Because, <laughs> because, you know, when you were actually leaving your key or keeping your key somewhere, you were thinking of something else. It's so an attention the, problem. The, the processing has not been done properly. Right. So the encoding has not actually been done properly. So you have... Usually, if, if mechanically you keep the keys uh, at a particular place every day and you keep it there, then it's fine. No problem. Right. So, <laughs> and the other thing is retroactive inhibition, we call it. So something that you are going to remember later on. For example, I had a friend whose name was Shumita. When I was a student of class 10, I had a very good friend whose name was Shumita. And later on, when I was studying master's, I had another friend, Shumita. And now, one day, the first Shumita called me, and I couldn't remember who she was. Because, <laughs> because you know, my recent most friend, 
the same friend whose name is Shumita, same name. She's taken the same slot. She has taken that slot. So the different regions become stimulated and the region, the right region when it becomes stimulated, it's okay. Otherwise, it becomes difficult. So I, I was just going to ask you, uh, Opie said that there are innumerable stimuli which actually are competing to uh, enter our mm, neural structure. So uh, probably inhibition has something to do with it. Absolutely. And yeah, I, there's a pretty high threshold that the brain the memory sets. like infinite? No, far from it. So Far from it. Far from it. But it's very large, but it's not infinite. Mm-hmm. So there's a great book, which I'm sure you've uh, read, Pushpa. This is uh, Luria's Mind of a Mnemonist. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So this is of an unfortunate gentleman who oh, could remember, remember practically everything. Yeah. He was very dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah. No, surely forgetting is a blessing. I don't think yes. anyone would yeah. deny that. But um, at, at a technical level, isn't memory a lot? Sure, infinite being used in a in, in, in a figurative sense, maybe. But what are the limits to memory? Well, you know, I could do an extraordinarily brutal and reductionist calculation. Mm-hmm. And something we do as a back-of-the-envelope piece of entertainment if we've... Uh, Sure. If we're, you know, in an expansive mood in the evening. Sure. You calculate, okay, these are the number of brain cells. Mm-hmm. These are the number of synapses. Mm-hmm. You assign, let's say, one bit capacity per synapse. Mm-hmm. Eight bits if you're feeling generous. Mm-hmm. And you can come up with a number. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a trivial calculation to do, mm-hmm. right? So if you were completely absurd about it, you could say that there's roughly 10 to the 11 brain cells in a human. There's roughly 10 to the 4 synapses. Mm-hmm. You assign a bit to each of those, you have 10 to the 15 bits, mm-hmm. yeah. which somewhat which alarmingly, a it's a lot, It's a lot. but hard disks are now up there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So hard disks are already in the 10 terabyte range. Yeah. And so we're pretty much on par. So you can hold in your hand the theoretical capacity of the brain. Yeah. yeah? Now, yeah. of course, the real capacity of the brain is actually far more limited. Interesting, I was going to say. Uh-huh. <laughs> because we don't, we do not remember the same way a computer does. A large fraction, I'm sure uh, Pushpa can give a much clearer explanation of this, a large fraction of what we remember, and maybe this is social too, is synthesized. It's not remembering bit by bit, yeah, yeah, but you right. put the pieces together and you recreate. So it just compounds. I'll, actually, I'll ask her. Pushpa what what do does that. that mean when you say that it's synthesized? What does that mean, Pushpa? I mean, so they, they don't stay as individual elements or what happens? Or are they commingled together with emotions, other kinds of markers? You, do, you mean it in that sense? You use the word chunking. Yes. And chunking is one example of integration mm. where there were different discrete elements and you have formed them into two or three units. Mm. So, for example, if you have three, five, seven, nine, five... You don't remember them six letters as 35, 79, 5. Yeah, so you reduce so six to, th- six that's to three. That's one integration. Yeah. And that integration, the more we can do uh, in different subjects that we study, in different experiences that we have, the better we remember it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, your mind doesn't have to do a lot of work. Mm-hmm. When I say 35, 79, 5, mm-hmm. I have already lessened the burden of my brain, instead mm-hmm. of remembering five discrete numbers, I now have to remember only two or three units. Right. And also, there is a meaning 
meaningful we make a meaningful whole and it is very important that we make whatever we study whatever we learn we make a meaningful whole of it for example if i study just what akbar was doing and what kind of changes he brought in the administration of india i will remember it i will probably forget it fast but if i try to understand what he did in comparison to uh, what his father did for example that he brought about those administrative changes whereas akbar brought about these administrative changes and these are the areas where akbar deferred and whether akbar actually did better so what so, what is it at the technical level that's working at the technical level there is a logical logical link which has been established between different subjects so there's something sequential there yeah, is, is, is sequential that what's happening some kind of storyboarding it is meaningful it is mm. meaningful mm. i will tell you the the meaningful yeah the, it is very important that it has been uh, fully experimentally established you know um, ebinghaus uh, was the um, psychologist who really started first studying memory in a scientific way and in a quantified way mm-hmm. and he used uh, nonsense syllables to test the memory of subjects he used nonsense syllables why because you know if you have meaning you can associate it with uh, um, uh, something else in your life say if i ask you to say uh, if i give you a number 1947 hmm? to remember you will immediately associate it with the year right. of independence of india right. so in order to uh, understand this memory uh, capacity of memory he used nonsense syllables right. and it was established now very well that if syllables are meaningful our memory or our learning is quick our memory is longer and we can remember it very effectively we can retrieve it well also does this resonate with you rohit i mean this this question of meaning because you were making this very interesting point about excess of memory in in some ways um and he probably meant it in a manner where there's lots of artifacts around there lots of forms around with maybe not not sufficient meaning imbued in them isn't it right yes yeah, yeah absolutely i think this you know so i'll try and respond in, yeah. in perhaps in an oblique manner but yeah uh, uh, it's a you know tremendously interesting questions and mm. and my mind is sort of going in five different directions so pick one at a time i'll try and be focused well the first thing is to me you know what's interesting is the sort of affective power of memory right right and i think maybe that's one way of understanding or responding to the term synthesize that upi used um and the arguments that you know pushpa put uh, put forth which is that uh, uh you know it's some it's something that affects us you know viscerally as well and you know maybe we need to think about its impact in a way that goes beyond uh, you know some kind of sort of mind versus body divide and so on mm-hmm. i mean just to give you a personal kind of experience that uh, you mm-hmm. know my uh, uh, extended family my the the extended family lives in delhi mm-hmm. and uh, my grandparents used to live in east delhi mm-hmm. which was the scene of some of the worst riots in 1984 the anti sikh riots mm-hmm. and uh, you know i do remember you know a family member telling me that at some point of time there had been violence there and there used to be a movie theater and uh, you know the the which has now been demolished and it's given way to a mall and that that was a sign of surprise, some kind surprise. of surprise you know some kind <laughs> of sort of barbarity uh, uh, and i remember that intersection section very well it was after a market called shakarpur sure now you know i um, 
uh, and and I think for years afterwards when I heard that story, and this is sort of 84 and we used to visit Delhi fairly frequently and so on for, but for years after that, I had this sense that, you know, I had a memory that violence had taken place there. Right. But uh, it was not something I had, you know, kind of experienced. But not something I'd experienced, but I had it not, was reasonably vivid nevertheless. It was still sort of vivid. It had a kind of impact on me. Now, is that true or false? Mm. Okay, now this leads to a whole other sort of can of worms again, which is the question of ethics, mm. right? So, um, on the so one hand... the domain if, of false memories almost. Right. But, you know, again, what does sort of false mean? Mm. You know, you can use these words like illusion, but is that an yeah. untruth? And, uh, you know, uh, this question, interestingly, also comes up with regard to a somewhat different phenomenon, which is, you know, people who see visions of, for instance, Mother Mary and so on, yeah. uh, you know, which is which puts, say, something like the Vatican in a very strange position, yeah. where what they basically say is that they discredit the miracle. They say the miracle itself is not something we can endorse, but they say that the faith that stems from the miracle is something we treat as genuine, right? So I'm using a kind of very sort of approximate parallel sure. out there. So that would be one way. Now, for me, the question here is that if, you know, some memories are, and like much more, memories associative, memories unreliable, as Pushpa's example pointed out, you know, how do you distinguish that memory, which is unreliable in some way, from projects of deliberately creating false memories, which we find on the internet all the time is with that, Photoshop, that's right? That's a beautiful question, isn't it? So, and then I'll just, you know, one other yeah. question I want every, would Please. love to hear everyone's thoughts on are really the role of popular culture. You know, there's this marvelous film Inside Out. Mm. My seven-year-old watches it all the time. <laughs> and there's a lovely scene in it where this the protagonist gets lost in the graveyard of forgotten memories. Mm -hmm. And there's a toy she's loved as a child called, uh, you know, Bing Bong. Mm -hmm. And it's that memory of that toy which helps her eventually come out again. But as a result of it, the toy kind of vanishes. And it's just a sort of fascinating parallel to me about, you know, does the mind have some or consciousness or whatever term we want to give it, have some kind of sort of mechanism where, you know, it sifts sort of its memories out and so on. I mean, there's a lot there that's to be... Uh, you know, plus you think of all these wonderful science fiction films like Minority Report, yeah. based on the you know Philip Dick yeah. novel Strange Days years yeah. ago. Uh, in some way, to me, it's fascinating that popular culture has sort of anticipated this fascination we have about you know sort no, of that's memory a beautiful and so question. on. Can memories be planted, Opi? Can you make me remember something which I never really experienced or memorized? Okay, I can answer that at two levels. Yes. One is a good lawyer can do that to you very easily. <laughs> Uh, they are extremely, and it's of course not ethical, but it, it's it's very. They can easy. make you have deeply held convictions that. No, no, I'm not going that far. But with regards to specific events, it's very common, and there's standard tactics that are employed to lead people to put together. That's what I meant by synthesis, right? They right. help to prime uh, recall or associations. Um, which may be out of context or simply wrong. Right. And then people will latch on to them because that is that is how we synthesize our memories. We, right. we have very few, maybe very few actual bits Individual stored, but island. the bits are the high-level bits. Yeah. And if you fiddle with those, then you can actually, and the brain is, and humans are very good at confabulating. You build up stories to make sense of the world all the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of... On the, on the whole, yeah. would you be suspicious of... Human memory? I mean, on the whole, it's reasonably solid, isn't it? Of course, it has its fallible edges. Um, it's very dependent on context, and it's also dependent on training. Mm. Mm. 
but if you if you if you were to just do a fmri or whatever the right terminologies of the brain can you say whether somebody is telling the lie or the truth okay well you shouldn't bring up fmri because it's currently in the throes of a scientific uh, major debate and crisis so sure. i'll leave that aside so um, let's use that as a metonym as opposed yes, to fmri itself but uh, um so now i've lost actually lost the thread the question is <laughs> yes. that can you can you wire somebody's brain up and say that right. yes so so then so i i leave the psychological uh, details to push back on that yeah. but at the very low level we now have techniques of in rats of starting to fiddle with uh, what they are able to recall and in some sense implant false memories these are extraordinarily crude at the current time mm-hmm. but for example you can get a rat to believe that a certain location mm-hmm. is associated with an unpleasant stimulus like a shock sure when in reality that never happened so mm. to that very crude extent we can fiddle with with memories we can create memories that don't exist this is an extremely far cry from the much more detailed and nuanced memories of you remembering the experience when you first understood a kabir couplet or something like that right. that's a you know right. that's that's, the other that's light years away yeah. but at least it shows that in principle some kinds of things can be implanted and i leave the more psychological ones to push back to can it be done like why hypnotism why i don't know other yeah, means yeah yeah in hypnotism even without even without implanting any false memory when the patient is under hypnosis and he is asked to remember incidents from his childhood uh, it has been found that uh, at least maximum 30% why do you always go to the childhood pushpa well in psychoanalysis you know the trend is that all your present symptoms are determined by your childhood experiences right. so you know you will have to ask the person and just go on go on and tell whatever has happened to you you begin from the from from the present then slowly and slowly they themselves start remembering and how far back do you go because i mean we barely well, have any recollection of no, our childhood no 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 in in proper psychoanalysis you know whichever whenever whatever age you can remember and freud has said that you cannot remember anything uh, below the age of 3 Mm. and uh, you can fractionally remember certain things up to the age of you know 7 full memory a full fledged memory where you remember in a narrative sequence that comes much later after the age of 6 7 why does it happen so late i mean there's nothing wrong with 6 or 7 or 8 years old but what what is at work for all that for all those uh, infantile years? amnesia even neurologists admit absolutely it's very it's very clear so what is at work clearly we born with all our neurons i would imagine we're born with more neurons than we have in adulthood yeah yeah because <laughs> we, we lose, lose them all the time <laughs> so the, so it's the connections so, that keep taking shape so the connections are taking shape at an incredible rate mm. but you know don't underestimate the learning that does happen and that stays with us yes yeah you learn to move your hands yeah and we remember that you learn to see lives. you learn very fundamental parts of of survival so how are these two kinds age? of memories different how's the memory of my having learned how to ride a bicycle at the age of 5 let's say mm-hmm. different from my memory of you know having fallen from a tree at the age of 11 mm-hmm. how are these two memories different are we just using the words interchangeably but wrongly or there's something no, similar in the mechanism of no there's there's some retrieval. quite fundamental differences episodic and declarative memories and then there's motor memories so there's a you know these are i mean the the glib way of saying it is that they're stored in different structures but i think it's probably more accurate to say that there are 
you know, more subtle uh, ways in which these things are learnt. Right. The synapses involved may be different. In the case of, for example, childhood learning and forgetting, mm -hmm. the the very nature of plasticity in the brain is different in childhood. Right? You are able to learn words, for example, at an absolutely incredible rate yeah. between the ages of three and, three of, and six yeah. or something. Entire languages yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, it's now very well established that there are actually different receptors, molecular uh, you know, proteins which are expressed, which, and the ones expressed during early childhood are much better for storing information. So are we going in the direction of long-term and short-term memories there? These are definitely very long-term. So they can set in motion uh, very long-term memories, and they do so much more easily than the complement that you have uh, later in, in life. Now, but, you know, this is, again, the very, very crude and broad-brush way of describing what is happening. It's just one aspect of it. One question I'd be interested in is... Yeah. Uh, uh, in, in getting a response to is, uh, you know, historians and others have shown that memory practices change over a period of time, you know, just as reading practices change and that the capacity to remember and mem mem yeah. memorize or wrote memory. I mean, there was, I think Michiko Kakutani in the New York Times recently wrote a piece on the virtues of remembering poetry, which I had to do as mm -hmm. in school, <laughs> but is apparently not like good pedagogical practice now. But memory practices change over a period of time and you know, people used to be able to retain large numbers of memory or even now yeah. in the era of cell phones, we don't remember as many phone numbers as we did 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just wondering that, you know, in from a sort of evolutionary standpoint, the change in memory practices, say over 400 or six or 800 years is, is insignificant, right? That would not have, or would could that have any sort of impact uh, whatsoever on, you know, the kinds of processes that you're suggesting? And, you, and you're referring to declarative memory, Rohit. Or declarative memory, or what was it, the episodic memory was the other category that you used. Uh, or even, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'd be interested, uh, Pushpa, in hearing about, uh, you know, uh, you did mention that sort of current day psychoanalysts don't use the terminology of Freud. Uh, uh, but I, I sort Not of remember. all. This no, about this. Uh, some of them. One of but, a few of them. Yeah, but I remember sort of reading an article in Time several years ago saying how Freud had kind of come full circle, that he was, you know, discredited for a while, or, and then suddenly people were rediscovering him. But I'm just wondering if there are any yeah. other paradigms. I mean, I'm thinking of Lacan here, who, you know, has this famous article on the mirror stage, but then you have uh, about, you know, this sort of self recognizing itself yeah. at a very early stage. But then Lacan was also apparently like thrown out of the French yeah. Association of Psychoanalysts, and Chomsky just said that he was a... He's doing it all the time. He was, yeah, he was. A, he just said that he's. He said he just said that Lacan is a trickster who's been, you know, hoaxing the world and seeing how far he can get away with it. So I'm just interested in both the question of, you know, cultural changes in cultural practices. What are their implications in in, Does, in any is kind it, is of biological terms? Is it actually changing terms? our memory capacity, for lack of a better phrase or word? I don't think so. I, I think, think so. that kind of thing is uh, is is very deeply genetic. You're not going to change human capacity for for declarative memory or episodic memory or whatever. Yeah. You are going to change the environment. You're going to change what they learn. Uh, just to put it in context... So for all of a second, if all of us had to memorize poetry as kids, we would be able to do it all over again. We'd be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think think, think of it this way, right? Uh, only a few, few tens of thousands of years ago, our social circle would have been maybe 20, 30 families at most. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Our, but our geographical range would have been a very complex but not a very distant range. Yes. And, and our conceptual range too. and our conceptual range would be minimal. Yeah. These days we remember so much socially. Yeah. And we cram our kids full of unimaginable amounts of material. Yeah. It seems like an order of magnitude more than when I was in uh, in uh, high school. <laughs> yeah. We just cram them full of this stuff and they somehow do it. And I don't know that that's that kind of feat of memory is all that different from uh, memorizing all the verses of the Quran or the Gita or, you know. That's a great point. Yeah. That's an excellent point. Great point. Yeah. What do you have to say to that, uh, Pushpa? Is there such a thing as memory capacity? Uh, no, I don't think that uh, there is any. It, I, I, I don't. Uh, there are two things. One is span of memory and the other thing is capacity of memory. The span as in how long Sp- can you remember uh, something? Span is, no, span is how many things you can actually remember in one glance, paying attention, say, right. for a, f- a particular fraction of sure. second, sure. three or four seconds. Sure. You will be shown, you know, memory games you play, you yeah, used yeah, to absolutely. play in the Cue cards or whatever. Yeah, so that actually has now come to be standard about seven. Though there's, of course, always debates in the field. Sure, sure. The latest one says that it's only four. Oh, but it's okay. okay, it's not 80. Okay. It's not 80, no. It's, yeah, it's, it's somewhere But capacity, I think OP has already answered that our capacity actually is not unlimited, but it is very high. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, actually we do remember a lot of things. And though there is this thing that, uh, mm, you know, whatever we have learned once, we will never forget. It's only because we don't use it, but it's there. Somewhere. So yeah. if you give the proper cue, then it will actually uh, come up. You will yeah. be able to remember it. Yeah. I don't know how true that is. <laughs> and, but I do think that a lot of things um, that have happened that have happened long ago, we do remember with the help of appropriate cues. Like, you know, a song or a poem that... A it comes which, rushing back to you yeah, in, yeah. with full fidelity. Somebody, somebody uh, hums a line of a poem or a line of a song and I immediately remember, oh, this was the song I used to hear when I was 10 Again, years old. Again, because of synthesis. Because, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it is... You it, remember the whole chunk in a way. there. Mm. So, I do not know. Quantitatively, it will not be possible for me to say how much is our memory, but I do think that it's it's pretty, pretty high. Yeah. Though it certainly is not infinite or unlimited. I think, There's, yeah. There's this question, two questions I'm very much interested, which he has said, that Freud has come full circle. Mm. He was initially neglected. Then he was almost worshipped. And then again, he has been dethroned. And then again, he's coming up. It is true that he actually is being revived. Um, His theories are being revived. A lot of things that Freud has said certainly will not meet scientific criteria of today. But I think what is being revived is the insight that he had into the psychological mechanism that is working. Behind, say, uh, symptom formation, behind the uh, dynamic functioning of the mind. That is what is being uh, revived. I think so, because, you know, as I told you, some contemporary psychoanalysts do not even use the word unconscious. Mm. They do not deny that there is an unconscious something going on, but they think that it is more related to attention. It is more related to the process of our, th- of our thinking rather than having three deep levels of our in our mind. One is conscious, the other is preconscious, the third one is unconscious. And the unconscious is like a seething cauldron where all our rejected desires are fighting to come up 
and yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, that. Yeah. So that uh, that conception is not no, nowadays not being entertained in that way. But I think what is being revived is his very intense, very good insight into how our dynamically our mind functions. Mm. That is something which I personally, because I'm in this line, I at times wonder how could he do it. And you attach a very specific sense to the word dynamically. What do you mean? Yeah, you dynamically, dynamically means you know in your mind what. Uh, your your desires and your your there's uh, an interplay thoughts, of all these factors your memories they affect the other thoughts and memories and in turn are being affected by them yeah so that is a dynamic interaction yeah. Yeah. and the other thing i i really cannot answer your question regarding laka because i don't understand laka so i'm <laughs> glad you know i shouldn't say this but i'm glad <laughs> it's 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 a, it's a it's a big club i think yeah <laughs> but there is one question which actually since you asked it it has been you know um it has been it has been there in my mind you were talking about the excess of memory and uh, you were you also quoted that you know what if there is a trauma what is the point in remembering it why do we go on talking about it why do you go on thinking about it i think there is one thing which is missing in this statement and that is that it is not that i want to talk about it that i want to think about it i just cannot forget it so what's the and trick uh, pushpa take the cues away pardon is, is the trick to take the cues away key cues uh, for for one thing as i told you time memory is a function of time mm. and you know slowly and slowly uh, as other stimuli will flood our brain these memories will recede in the right. background and right. that is one way in which all trauma are healed to right. certain extent right but as uh, when a trauma of this kind occurs where you know things uh, actually come up and where the person simply is unable to uh, to forget this trauma or he cannot push away the memory you know like you know yesterday a patient of mine uh, day before yesterday a patient of mine gave a session she had come after 6 7 years she was having some trouble and she said when the session was over she said to me there is something some burden i'm carrying within i want to i don't want to carry it i want to unburden myself mm. the time was over i couldn't give her in time so i gave her next day's appointment so there is something she knows what is it mm. some memory it could be very painful memory it could be traumatic memory not necessarily child sexual abuse sure. but it could be something which probably has hurt her very much sure and she actually is carrying it and she can carrying means she cannot forget it sure and in the question of talking with all the people sharing i was reading a paper uh, they were doing this group therapy with uh, uh, people who have gone uh, the the massacre in colombia mm. uh, and um, similarly i went for trauma counseling to tsunami victims mm. uh, and you know it was when we make the school students who have lost their classmates who yeah. had lost their parents who had lost their sisters and you know we made them slowly recall um, in the, in the form of a theater in the form of a play to replay the whole thing many of them cried many of them became very quiet many of them started talking so you know and you know slowly and slowly after doing this for a number of days then they became quieter calmer and you know, we had continued this you know after 6 months we did the follow up sure and of course 
the effects were i mean very satisfying and very gratifying sure. so you know the question the when you say excess of it's memory complex. it's not straight it's it's not that easy to say that why are you carrying it you, what is the point of talking about it it's not that i want to talk about it. it's simply that i cannot Thank and you, that is yeah. that is why schachter um, uh, donald schachter who is the psychologist at harvard university uh, he has you know in his book uh, related seven sins of memory and mm-hmm. the last sin is persistence of memory <laughs> <laughs> terrific i think that's a good note to end this on and thanks to all of you for making it we look forward to having you soon again thank you thank you thank you, you. thanks very much <laughs>